This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Ghouls in World War One, The Johnson Impeachment. Blocked Desires. And the Yeast That Made Lager. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features five original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to your existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots to bend your players' heads. Escape a labyrinthine airport. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. Available soon from your friendly local game store. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. It's time once again for that most prefatory of huts, the preamble hut, where we take care of a little bit of business before getting on to the bigger, beautiful, full-sized hut. And let me see, if we open up the preamble hut with a big old creak. Oh, look, there's a tiny baby little cinema hut waiting inside because, Ken, you have now caught up to me and you have also seen Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space starring Nick Cage and uh, people want to know... Uh, what your take on it was. Uh, my take on it was much like your take, that it was a, a full-spectrum tribute to Lovecraft's story. It captures the cosmic dark horror of it. It also is thickly leavened with the blackest of black humor. Uh, and Nick Cage, as is his wont, ties those two threads together admirably. Um, and that if you are painting a, a family disintegrating under the impact of an extra ultra-terrestrial meteor, Having the father become Nick Cage is certainly a form of disintegration, and I don't think anyone should object to that. The sound is uh, what I was cued by Richard Stanley to pay attention to because he mixes in infrasound and ultrasound into the mix, and he was still tinkering with it even for the showings at uh, the Film Fest. And then, of course, the score is by Colin Stetson, and the sound design and the score do a lot of, of other, of also great work, uh, building it up and the, the way the, the ultimate result is that you have a meteor that is violating rules, not just of, uh, of color, but also of sound and of smell. It's, it's a complete ultra terrestrial experience documented at its most cosmic and bleak by, uh, a genuine, uh, auteur of horror and madness and, uh, human, uh, breakage. Um, and it's it's an amazing movie, and I loved it. Yes, and, and a genuine Lovecraftian as well. So, uh, in the meantime, uh, listeners, as you're waiting for this to get through the festival circuit and to screens uh, near you, uh, you might also want to check out the episode of the Visitations podcast. Uh, that's the uh, podcast that Elijah Wood and his uh, producing partner uh, do together where they go and interview all of the cool people that they've made 
uh, movies uh, with their Spectre Vision horror production house. And the one with Richard Stanley, I don't think it even mentions the color out of space, which they wound up producing, but is a, uh, if, if unlike Ken, you didn't get to hang out with Richard Stanley, uh, you'll feel like you had after you listen to that podcast episode. Uh, thus ends the preamble, Ken. So that means it must be time to amble. Let's uh, turn the corner. Oh, look at that, Robin. You got your table. You got your miniatures. You got your bowls of Doritos and your dice and uh, your big old hole that smells of grave earth and your machine gun fire. Damn it, Robin. We're in a gaming hut, but we're in a World War One era gaming hut. Thanks to beloved Patreon backer Bill Durfee, who perhaps while being dragged under the earth by the claws of mysterious canine gibberers cries out world war one had trenches trenches are like ghoul tunnels how do i combine ghouls and world war one uh robin do you have any uh first ideas besides uh play the lovely scenario uh no man's land from uh, the good people at chaosium which is in fact ghouls and the trenches just right there uh well i guess not having uh read that recently i'll have to we'll have to try and come up with uh what the most obvious version of that is and then come up with the inobvious version. So uh, for the purposes of the qu- this question, uh, I'm going to stick to uh, the Lovecraftian ghouls uh, because I think they are interesting in that they have the limitation of uh, only eating the dead. Uh, right. So they're not they're not zombies uh, coming up to uh, just uh, chew on you. Uh, there's enough things to chew on you in World War One. You don't need right. zombies for that. Exactly. Uh, but that introduces another level of uh, complexity because the uh, the ghouls are causing a problem uh, by accessing the rich trove, uh, one of the richest troves in history of uh, of corpses for them to uh, munch on. And we might want to think about uh, what sort of problems that might create that our characters uh, would want to solve. Uh, the first question, I guess, is do we want our characters to be in the infantry, in the trench, uh, just regular soldiers, uh, 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 grunts with the uh, with the uh, trench foot, and uh, they're stuck in the mud, and they're worried about the poison gas. Uh, that seems like a a fertile opportunity for survival horror. Uh, but then the question is, if the ghouls aren't eating people. Uh, what is it that uh, our uh, characters are trying to survive? So maybe we might want to have characters with a bit more range of freedom who can actually move around uh, and do things. Uh, meaning that they might be intelligence officers or uh, someone brought in uh, from outside, uh, military police, or uh, somebody who's uh, able to do more than just hunker down and uh, and get shot at whenever they uh, poke their uh, heads above the uh, the trench. So I guess the most obvious mystery that you could be called into solve, Ken, is that uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, corpses that have gone missing and a big old hole in the ground. And uh, you might be uh, asked to go go down and see what that's all about. Yeah, um, that uh, that you know you're just the the lucky winners, and instead of going over the top, you go into the hole, uh, which is just as bad. And, and you know, and and again, we're we're talking about a a system in which the ghouls almost have to be up to something else, right? Because you know there are conservative estimates, a million dead bodies littering the area. They've got ample provender. They don't really need to go around messing with people or doing anything else except consuming the dead bodies. And if they just 
maintain a modicum of, uh, of low profile, no one will even notice because the bodies are always being chewed up by artillery fire or rats or, uh, just sucked under the mud or buried as people extend and, uh, repair the trenches. Uh, there, there is no such thing as a, uh, a part of that, of that, of that trench system, certainly in the, uh, on the Belgian front that is without, you know, plenty of things for a enterprising ghoul to just sit around and you, you wait a little bit. It's, it's the slow food movement, Robin, it'll come to you. And then, so the ghouls almost have to have a, another reason to, uh, erupt into your awareness. Um, I, I think that bodies disappeared from a shell hole may not be enough to get you to, to go after it unless one of the bodies had, you know, top secret dispatches or some MacGuffin reason that you have to follow that body into the, into the hole instead of just, yep, bodies in a shell hole. Welcome to 1917. Well, I, I'm going to posit that the ghouls are having a problem of success, that they're having a Malthusian population explosion uh, that, uh, and this assumes in this version, the ghouls are, uh, where do ghouls come from? Uh, you know, uh, when when two ghouls really love each other, uh, so uh, Lovecraft suggests that some humans turn into ghouls, uh, and right, so by it may being affect, obsessed with death and hanging around dead things all the time. Yes, so uh, it may be that uh, you uh, uh, you know you spot your best buddy, and he uh, because now uh, there's so much uh, food available for for ghouls, the uh, metaphysical ability to turn into a ghoul cranks up the background ghoul radiation whatever uh an unnatural thing it is that um, makes it possible for ghouls to exist there's more food therefore uh the uh implacable cosmic indifference of the world wants to briefly create uh, more ghouls so uh, you may spot a pal who's now a ghoul and want to go after him and see if you can rescue him and uh uh, bring him back to revive him somehow. That would be one uh, possible MacGuffin. Or uh, the other simply is that uh, you don't necessarily recognize any of the ghouls, but suddenly there's way, way more of them. And guess what? The new ghouls, they don't know all the ghoul rules, and they don't necessarily want to follow uh, the the ghoul leaders. Uh, so uh, in, in our friend uh, Gareth uh, Hanrahan's uh, uh, novel, The Gutter Prayer, he does a really great job of creating these uh, deep subterranean uh, uber ghoul uh, uh, demigods. And so it may be a, uh, you might uh, take a leaf from that book and sneak down and have a uh, a war between the old school ghouls and, and the new school ghouls, or perhaps the, the new crop that's swarming everywhere. Uh, maybe they want to come up and uh, there's still enough human in them that they want to help their buddies, that they uh, they still, you know, need access to corpses, of course. That mm. goes without saying, uh, you know, you got to eat. But maybe they want to uh, create the balance of corpses so that the other side is the one generating the dead. And so a ghoul troop shows up in your trench one day and uh, they're ready to pick up their, uh, their rifles again and uh, they can go over the top and sustain way more machine gun fire than a, a living uh, person can. And what do you do about that when that happens? Do you say yes? And for how long do you say yes? Because right. uh, perhaps the players know that they're in a horror story and know that horror stories are often about uh, saying yes to a temptation that later rebounds on them. Yes. And you can then um, have that problem of success uh, be the thematic problem throughout the adventure that it begins with the ghoul problem of success, making more ghouls. 
Um, it begin, then it becomes the problem of your unit's success at taking this German position and the discovery that the Germans have, have pulled back to, uh, figure out what happened with these, with this new advance and what kind of weird body armor the, the, the British have figured out. And now the ghouls are sitting there on the hilltop with you. And, you know, there's not any new dead bodies unless the Germans could somehow be convinced to attack you. Then there'd be a bunch of dead bodies. And it's, you know, uh, you could you almost play it as a farce in that there's so many things that could kill you in World War One that don't even involve, you know, ghouls attacking you. And every time one of your you, you have a big sheaf of player characters and every time one of them dies, the last thing he sees is one of his ghoul comrades turning to him with a slavering smile on his face. Don't worry, we'll take care of you. Um, uh, and then every so often one of them resurrects as a ghoul. That'd be sort of a fun way to do it is if you've got, you know, a. Uh, every uh, player has five or six characters and they play sort of the main one. You could either do it in rank order or in whichever other order you wanted to. And as they fall, you know, the, do they turn into a ghoul and then what, and what goes on? And then you're down to one tiny band of humanity with a whole bunch of ghouls, all of whom are just as eager to keep moving into the German trench lines as you, except you've suddenly maybe lost your appetite for that particular destruction. Right. And of course, uh, if there are too many ghouls and they're looking for stuff to do, there's no reason to think they're only going to be allied ghouls. So uh, you may uh, play it for a while as if you only see allied ghouls and they may say, well, we're, of course, you know, we we eat the dead, but we're still, you know, down with the uh, democracy and uh, and all blighty and what have you. But all of a sudden in the, the third act twist is, guess what? There's a big writhing maggoty wave of uh, stuff. Come, oh, no, look. There's German ghouls as well. And so uh, you may be watching what, uh, you know, turns out to be the, uh, you know, the battle of the ghouls. And now you are just uh, sort of cannon fodder uh, for that. And, uh, you know, the ghouls, they only eat the dead. But uh, you know what? If, if you accidentally step into harm's way, if they just sort of grab you and put you in front of the machine gun fire, well, then you're edible. Mm -hmm. So it may uh, come to the part where, you know, as there are fewer and fewer living humans to turn into corpses, this uh, population surge of ghouls is beginning to realize, that, oh, wait a minute, what's what's going to happen when all of the people are gone and we're still here and we're hungry? What are we going to do about that? And so uh, you uh, 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 perhaps with some of the player characters, uh, you know, playing ghouls at the end uh, are going to have to figure out. Do you go on a giant rampage across the countryside? Do you uh, have a worldwide dispersal? What do you do? Or do you go back into the depths and uh, finish off that war with the uh, the giant demigod ghouls in the, in the basement and try and set up uh, ghoul democracy or, or whatever it is that floats your rubbery, meeping boat? Mm -hmm. And then that sort of leads into the notion of uh, the greater ghoul ideology, as you say, and uh, are the ghouls themselves, even with, without the, the, the influence of new humans, are the ghouls themselves serving some great purpose or do they see themselves as serving some great purpose now that there's suddenly a lot more uh, uh, food around? There's the Delta Green introduced the, the ghouls that worship Stalin as the great provider. And so you could certainly see ghoul cults in the sense of ghouls who have a cult and believe that Yogg-Sothoth or uh, Shubnagorith or Mordigian or something has brought about this war. And so they worship the war as this, you know, magical, perfect source of, of bodies. And then 
You could even have the ghouls showing up in Berlin or London to attempt to keep the war going because that must be the will of Mordigian. And so their job is to, you know, uh, infiltrate uh, the uh, houses of parliament or the war office or whatever, and figure out how to, how to get the war going. And of course you're not playing uh, trench guys, or you might've played trench guys in an opening segment that sets you up as, Oh yeah, there's a lot of ghouls down there in the trenches. And then you snap back and you're playing um, uh, British intelligence staff who discover that there, there's some, you know, surprisingly uh, uh, vulpine looking officers who are, who are there. And, uh, and maybe that one of the British um, uh, generals might also have been a death cultist and transformed into a ghoul under the influences of Mordigian and is, is helping to cause uh, all of this hideous slaughter, not through incompetence. No, that would be a slander on the British. It <laughs> did so for the purpose of worshiping Mordigian. The uh, the more recently you've turned, uh, the greater your ability to manipulate your rubber rubbery features back mm-hmm. into uh, uh, something that will pass for who you used to be. But uh, you know, when you get mad or you get hungry or you know, suddenly there's a body in front of you, uh, you uh, uh, suddenly your snout comes out. And you have to uh, uh, lunge for it. So that can be a, a gruesome way that you, as intelligence officers, uh, unmask the incognito ghouls as you, you know, you carry a, a separate arm around with you. And <laughs> once you take it out of your bag, uh, if the person uh, faints in revulsion, they're human. But if they, uh, if their mouth opens wide full of uh, razor sharp teeth and they try to snatch it away from you, uh, you know it's a ghoul. Right. You've got another problem, but, mm-hmm. you know, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like a ghoul. You, you've lost your arm. <laughs> yes. And, and also the one you carried around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Also that one. <laughs> so, you know, you could have a big climactic scene where, uh, you know, you've gathered a corpse and you throw it in the middle of parliament and see how many parliamentarians leap on it. Uh, that could be a, a big fun thing. Uh, a less sort of giant scale, uh, less humorous uh, take on this would be. Uh, just a version where uh, a particular officer on the front is uh, gaining the covert aid of ghouls uh, in exchange for uh, giving them the bodies, and uh, you are investigating the, the mystery of uh, uh, the missing bodies of the falling servicemen, and you discover that uh, an officer on your side has made a pact with Mordigian. And again, you have that question of, well, what's more important, uh, breaking this terrible deadlock, this meat grinder of a war, uh, but also propitiating Mordigian. Is this going to work out well? What do we do about this officer? And you have to make sure, of course, when you're designing that scenario, that there has to be uh, something big and terrible uh, for the player characters to do, uh, whichever uh, way they decide on that uh, moral quandary. Yes, I, I can see the, the most of these scenarios are going to end with calling an artillery fire on your own position. That's just my guess. <laughs> Some of that happened in uh, in the wars, which is the weird war version of uh, the Yellow King role playing game. And certainly, uh, the because it is a fictional war in that setting, uh, it, the idea is that uh, it's sort of like World War One. It's sort of like World War Two. Uh, it's uh, there might be a little uh, few bits where you could be inspired by Vietnam. So there's there's trenches somewhere where you could uh, do this plot line. But of course, in that one, the ghouls would have mysterious yellow masks. Uh, that they uh, uh, use to uh, burrow their way uh, from Carcosa. And speaking of burrowing, I think it's about time that we burrowed under this upcoming exciting uh, commercial message and find out what segment waits on the other side.
You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires. And got burned. You're all alone against them. One player. One game master. Create your own agent, or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one rules, designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan, or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. All alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knight's Black Agents Solo Ops. At your security-cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. The stovepipe hats and the mutton-chopped facial hair tell us that we've once more entered the history hut. And, uh, Ken, impeachment is in the news again. It is! And, uh, uh, we have uh, pulled way back on talking about political events on this podcast because... Uh, Mostly because there's no way we can keep up with them. Yes, there's a 10-day lead time. So I don't know if 10 days from now when this podcast drops, if there'll even be any, you know, an America below uh, the 49th parallel. There may just be, you know, you may all be riding around on motorcycles with mohawks fighting over gasoline. And, I'm, uh, but, and, and you've got to line up to get your mohawk because there's going to be a yes, huge demand. Exactly. Um, and uh, so, so if, if you're good at mohawks, uh, you know, you've, you've got, you're going to have a marketable skill, perhaps. Uh, so uh, I don't know what's happening with the current impeachment, but the uh, historical impeachment uh, that you often hear referenced, but never really explained, or very rarely explained. I think this will be the same 10 days from now. The Andrew Johnson impeachment. And uh, normally I do sort of a, a sous-son of research, uh, Ken, so that I can mm-hmm. feed you intelligent-sounding questions. Uh, this time I looked at the Wikipedia page and went, oh my god. Uh, so, it's 1867. <laughs> Up here in Canada land, the Magic Beaver is afraid that after the Civil War... Uh, that America is going to use all of their armed forces that they've gathered to invade Canada. And Magic Beaver decides to uh, have the Articles of Confederation and the the Nation of Canada is formed. But actually in America, that's the last thing anybody's thinking about. But they are thinking about taking Andrew Johnson, the president of the United States, and making him not the president of the United States anymore. So set the stage of... uh, what is the historical situation going on in 1867 that leads people to want to impeach Andrew Johnson? Well, I mean, they probably began wanting to impeach him very, very early in his term. He succeeds Abraham Lincoln after Lincoln is assassinated uh, in 1865. And Andrew Johnson was what they call a war Democrat. He was uh, put on the on the ticket in 1864 as a ticket of national unity during the uh, Civil War. He was from Tennessee. He'd been a slaveholder. He not maybe the ideal person to lead America after the Civil War or during, some would say. Uh, so uh, when he becomes president through uh, the accident of assassination, he has very little in the way of of, of of political capital and is surrounded by cabinet officers who are immediately hostile to his notion of um, uh, how the post-war situation ought to develop. Right. And this is a period when cabinet officers are much more powerful and sort of free-willing figures often than you get now. Right. Yeah. They're no longer bland functionaries. Uh, they are people uh, because the, the government is so much smaller. They have proportionally much larger power. And also they are by and large selected from very powerful figures 
uh, who have an outside constituency of some sort as a means of unifying the party or the country around the president. We see some of that even in the modern era, but less of it. Um, uh, and also because there's fewer cabinet offices. So you can have them all be important folks. And the most important of the folks during the Civil War was a man named Edwin M. Stanton, who was the Secretary of War. And Stanton, uh, God bless him, uh, was a man who believed in grinding the South under the North's heel, uh, make it pay for the war, both morally and financially, and to uh, continue the occupation of the South until every last uh, secessionist impulse had been beaten down. And Andrew Johnson uh, differed from this approach, as with many of the other approaches of Edwin Stanton. Edwin Stanton had been Secretary of War uh, for the whole first term, he developed the same sort of um, proprietary attitude towards the War Department that long-term office holders tend to have over their government departments. And so he and Johnson butted heads uh, repeatedly. And so uh, Andrew Johnson removed Edwin Stanton from the, sec- from the cabinet, despite a uh, law passed by Congress in March 1867 uh, over his veto called the Tenure in Office Act. And the Tenure in Office Act uh, was supposed to make you not just seek the advice and consent of the Senate to appoint the cabinet members, but also to make them seek the advice and consent of the Senate to remove cabinet members. And uh, that uh, was something that got Johnson's backup. He vetoed the act. It passed over his veto. And he said, that's an unconstitutional law, so I'm not going to follow it. And I'm going to fire Edwin M. Stanton and replace him with Lorenzo Thomas, this fine fellow whose main virtue is that he's not Edwin M. Stanton. And that set up a uh, big um, uh, showdown between Johnson and uh, the United States Congress, which had (laughs) specifically passed that law to prevent Andrew Johnson from annoyingly trying to run the government uh, that they thought if they just sort of ran it in conjunction with the cabinet, we could leave Johnson alone as a figurehead or a caretaker. And then when he was gone, we could have a proper Republican like Ulysses S. Grant and everyone would be uh, the winner. And and that is what uh, led to the, uh, to the impeachment and the impeachment. Basically the, the charge was that uh, he unlawfully broke uh, that law um, and th- that was enough that the president just straight up breaking a law like that is, is illegal. The, there were 11 counts, um, uh, nine of which involved that, uh, that, that removal. The 10th, uh, was making three speeches with the intent to bring into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, and contempt to the United States Congress. And the 11th count, which may be the one that, uh, that, that is the, is the count that we see going forward, bringing disgrace and ridicule to the presidency by his words and actions. Um, which if that's impeachable, oh my goodness, did we miss some bets in the last 120 odd years? Right. Uh, but as it turns out, uh, perhaps it is not impeachable. Uh, Robin, did you get a read to the end and find out how it came out? Well, I, he was not removed from office. That's true. Turns out it's very difficult yeah. to remove someone from office. So he was uh, impeached by the House, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the articles were brought forward. The House passed the articles of impeachment. That is technically what impeachment is, is basically the House acting as a grand jury and voting to indict or not indict the president under the articles presented. Right. And then the second stage is removal from office, and that's the uh, job of the Senate. Yeah, the Senate is the, tri- is the jury for the trial, basically. Yes. And, and uh, you will note... Uh, that this is never a president has never been actually been removed from office due to the impeachment process. And why wasn't he 
uh, removed in this instance? First of all, uh, none of the Democrats wanted him removed. Uh, so weird. <laughs> they, they, they liked the part where you coddled the South. So they were all on, uh, on the side there. Johnson also, of course, had been a influential Democrat and had built up a great deal of political capital with them, which is why he was vice president in the first place. Uh, seven of the Republican senators said that they didn't believe that the, uh, uh, impeachment had been a fair impeachment, that Johnson had not had enough time to gather evidence, uh, to support his case. Um, and that it had been railroaded through and that they weren't standing, uh, for it. And then a few that more. That would be a classic procedural argument, uh, which again. Classic procedural argument. And a few more, uh, may have felt that on the, on the merits, uh, whether or not the president is allowed to remove his own cabinet members was a dumb law in the first place. And, and, uh, <laughs> arguably unconstitutional. Arguably unconstitutional, just as, as, as the president had argued, argued in his defense. Um, so the, uh, question was, would the president, after the impeachment, would he then pursue reprisals against the guys who voted for impeachment? And was he going to actually buckle down and start enforcing reconstruction? And we should get a better uh, secretary of war than the one you picked, even if it isn't going to be Edwin Stanton. And Johnson agreed to all of those things, which may have been the reason that the other Republicans uh, joined the the nine um, uh, uh, procedural Republicans and voted and gave the the necessary votes to impeach. It needed two thirds of the Senate to vote to impeach, and they got one short, uh, one vote short. Uh, so concessions were made. There was a bit of a settlement, and he was not uh, removed from office. So what was his uh, political fate after that? Did it? Uh, uh, did this essentially was this a wound that later finished him off? I mean, it certainly. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's a shot across the bow to any president to get uh, as far as impeachment. And because Johnson didn't have independent political capital in the majority of the country in the North, um, and the South, of course, was not yet part of the uh, part of the Senate because the states had not been readmitted. He didn't have a lot of power to begin with. He was trying to exercise the institutional power of the office. Impeachment, Which is what his opponents objected to. Right. Is impeachment. um uh uh, demarcated that pretty strongly and his agreement to go along with the reconstruction act meant that he, he was not quite the caretaker president that his impeachers uh, had wanted to turn him into, but he didn't have a lot of uh, latitude to go and, and uh, do anything else for the rest of his term. And obviously he was not renominated much less reelected. Now uh, he is currently cited uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one uh, to make the point that you can, uh, drop any old article of impeachment that you want. You can cite anything as a reason for uh, impeaching someone in in the house. Yeah, uh, and and it's high crimes and misdemeanors, or, or just being a jerk. It turns right. out it's like uh, you know they say um, uh, science fiction is what is published by a science fiction editor and impeachable offenses. One the house votes to impeach on the basis of right. But of course, the other half of that is in fact it's extraordinarily difficult to uh, get uh, uh, two thirds of senators to uh, kick out a president. And so it is uh, often uh, the point is often made in our uh, in the current situation that it's an unparalleled level of partisanship. And, uh, you know, in a previous era, it would be easier to uh, impeach someone who had done the things that uh, the current president has done. But there's no actual precedent for that at all. The uh, precedents are Andrew Johnson was impeached on uh, essentially uh, political grounds and. Uh, then was not removed from office. 
We think of Nixon as having been impeached, but of course he was not. He resigned. No, ahead he of resigned that. ahead of the inquiry. Uh, the, the inquiry began, um, and they started to gather testimony and, and do hearings. And Nixon was like, uh, "This is probably not going to end well," and resigned the office. Right. Uh, and uh, Tricky Dick, I think, uh, uh, perhaps better at reading writing on walls uh, than yes, than uh, the president. He was, he, was a, he was a wall writing reader. Yes. Uh, way back. Yeah. And, of course, uh, Clinton was impeached and then not removed from office. And because uh, the uh, electorate uh, felt he uh, should not have been uh, removed from office, that uh, helped redound to his uh, benefit because he was actually a uh, relatively popular president at the Mm -hmm. time of his uh, impeachment. So uh, other than those big sort of broad strokes things, what do our uh, loyal and noble listeners want to be able to have in their back pockets when they're well actualing? other people about the Johnson impeachment? Well, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily sure that, uh, I mean, we are in such a debased state, Robin, that you can well actually someone uh, who argues that Nixon was impeached still. Uh, There there are people out there still saying that. Um, And I think that the uh, amount of well actuallying is either that, as you said, um, impeachment is a political process, not a criminal one. And if you feel like the uh, you can get the president uh, impeached. C- come on and take it. And uh, if not, it's uh, possibly not going to end well for you. There is, I think, very little sense that any impeachment is is apolitical. Uh, we have not yet had a an Aaron Burr situation <laughs> uh, in the presidency anyway. And of course, there's the basic fact that the House impeaches and the Senate uh, votes uh, to convict or not convict. And that's the... Um, Another big thing that people keep missing out on somehow, um, that uh, that impeachment is indictment. The trial happens in the Senate. And uh, is there anything weird or esoteric going on in Washington at this time that our player characters might uh, do while this is going on in the background? It is also the period of the American vampire. Uh, there is a fellow named uh, James Brown, uh, which makes him very hard to Google. I'll point out. So uh, he, he can't be detected by electronic means. So perhaps yeah, he's a so vampire. Yeah, so lesson here, if you want to be a vampire, be named Bill Smith. Right, right. And depending on how you read uh, the reports, he was a black or a mixed race uh, sailor on a, on a ship. And they found him in the hold drinking blood uh, of uh, fellow sailors, two of whom were dead. Um, he'd been grabbed and uh, was sentenced to death, but... President Johnson commutes his death sentence and puts him in prison for life. Uh, so the um, notion so that the vampiric mesmerism might have been used to uh, sway a few uh, senators on the bubble. Possibly. And it also might have been that President Johnson recognized that America needed a vampire as a strategic asset, uh, which is how it ties into the, the Dracula dossier in that the American vampire is yet another possible thread of the conspiracy that you can involve. But yes, President Johnson commuting a vampire and then suddenly a bunch of senators prove weirdly stubborn. Uh, Who can say? Uh, uh, Edwin Stanton, um, God bless him, uh, was very much insistent that there had been trickery and chicanery involved. Uh, Benjamin Butler, who was a um, uh, Republican senator from, I want to say, Massachusetts, also uh, believed in that, held his own hearings to look into uh, arguments of corruption, believed that 
Uh, Thurlow Weed, the powerful newspaperman, had taken tobacco money and used it to to bribe the senators. So uh, if you're looking for the the human conspiracy on top of the vampire conspiracy, you can tie it to Thurlow Weed. And well, th- there you and, go. There's uh, your the, uh, well, actually, listeners, uh, you can tell people. Well, actually, it was all about vampires, and people don't talk about that much anymore. And uh, you will be uh, regarded with all the respect and esteem uh, due to a Ken and Robin listener. And uh, speaking of that, uh, let's listen to a commercial and uh, see what happens after that. The Best of Asphagel is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast from being eaten in a trench by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Chris Farrell. The Monster Talk Podcast. Joe Webb. Ludovic Chavant. And Phil Gross. The chatter of keys on the IBM Selectric, the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon into a jelly jar, and the sense that this sentence is never ended well in its history welcomes us <laughs> once more into the office of the hut in which we learn how to write good. And Robin, today you're going to talk about... Uh, Perhaps, um, maybe not the oldest story in the world, which is, of course, Man Wants Flower of Immortality, but it's the ending of the oldest story in the world, which is Man Wants Flower of Immortality and Don't Get It. Uh, we're talking about the uh, observation that Sir Mick Jagger made, uh, famously, uh, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you get a novel out of it. What are we talking about here? Right. So we're talking about uh, block desires and we're talking about how you uh, use them, how you create them to uh, make the... Uh, journey of a dramatic character uh, from being torn between two uh, sides of themselves to resolving uh, themselves one way or another. And so, uh, first of all, we have to back up and uh, look at some of the basic uh, definitions of what a character is in fiction that are used in uh, my book, Beating the Story, or in Hamlet's Hit Points. And you have the procedural character, who is uh, uh, often uh, sort of a heroic figure of uh, sort of pulp or adventure. Um, often the narratives that uh, uh, animate the the, uh, the nerd brain. And you can have a transformative uh, procedural character who by uh, achieving an external goal uh, changes from one state to another state. So um, Frodo uh, is trying to take a ring to a particular place. That's a classic quest. But along the way, 
uh, he's completely changed. He is a transformative hero. Uh, but a dramatic hero is someone who is not necessarily consciously, uh, but unconsciously is undergoing a change. And the change requires them to get emotional uh, concessions or not from other people. Whereas the uh, procedural character seeks an external goal, which may be reflected in their uh, emotional development. Here, there is no um, mission. There's no uh, plot per se, but there are just people interacting with people uh, trying to get things. So uh, Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, the thing that he most wants uh, is success and respect. Uh, and uh, he does not get that and therefore has to deal with the winds up dealing with the catastrophic consequences uh, of his failure. Or, uh, you know, Lear uh, wants uh, the respect of his daughters. He only gets the respect of his uh, crummy daughters. And uh, he uh, is then, uh, you know, realizes too late what a terrible mistake he's made. And uh, it's too late for him to then reconcile uh, with the good daughter who refused to flatter him in the first place. So when you're constructing a block desire, the goal is to come up with something uh, that creates uh, not just a journey for one person, but a rich relationship uh, between uh, two people. If you create your characters so that, uh, you know, King Lear wants the respect of all of his daughters and Cordelia recognizes that he's a bit of a bluff old man and decides to just sort of humor him and not be a stick in the mud and uh, she flatters him too, there's no story. Right. So you have to uh, create not only your main character, but the other characters who uh, also have their own reasons for doing things. If you want them to remain sympathetic characters, uh, which increases the pathos and uh, uh, evokes the challenges of the human condition in that uh, all sorts of uh, well-meaning people who have perfectly good reasons for wanting to do things wind up clashing and hurting each other, uh, that uh, you have a reason why that other character doesn't want to do things. And in this instance, Cordelia doesn't want to let uh, uh, flatter Lear because she uh, has a, a moral objection to, to doing so and because she's offended uh, by the uh, flattery of her sister. So her sort of innate honesty puts her on a collision course uh, with Lear, who is uh, looking... Uh, at least at the beginning, for, for anything uh, but honesty. Um, so, Ken, do you want to uh, uh, sort of uh, dream up a character uh, who wants something from other people and will sort of riff an example of how to create uh, block desires? Yeah, okay. And we can even do it in a sort of a uh, procedurally note or a iconic hero genre, although it's not an iconic hero story. Um, I like the I, I like the notion um, maybe springing from Jay Gatsby, which is where my brain was going during this, that you have a character who is a, a shady character, a shadowy character, a, a former gangster character who wants respect. He wants to be welcomed by society. And so it's not necessarily that it's just one girl that he wants, although, of course, there is usually just one girl that you want because that's how you write novels, people. Uh, but uh, the girl is the synecdoche for all of society, that if he can win her love honestly and purely, then he will be welcomed into the jet set and and made welcome at, at, at nice people's houses and no longer identified as shady gangster Jay Gatsby, but instead uh, party impresario Jay Gatsby, which is what he really wants to be. So let's look at a at a gangster, maybe not Jay Gatsby per se, but a, a gangster in a in a city that is 
uh, on the borderline of, of, of criminality. Uh, and they, they rise up. They've made some, some fat money with their criminality. And now they want to turn that fat money into respect the way that uh, rich people have since time immemorial. But of course, their criminal past and perhaps violent impulses are getting in their way. Is that a thing? Yes. And so, uh, the character that, uh, that he is interested in, she's going to then uh, represent uh, legitimacy to him. Mm-hmm. And there will be other characters who will represent other sorts of legitimacy, but she will also, uh, you know, represent a, a loving form of legitimacy, uh, acceptance and support. And, uh, and also, uh, probably the, uh, the, the allure of her, uh, old money glamour, for example. And so he wants legitimacy from her. Uh, he also wants love from her. Uh, why can't, uh, she then, what makes her an interesting, fulfilling character as opposed to just a, a an index card on the corkboard? And so what is her reason for being unable to fully grant him the acceptance he, uh, she wants? So the uh, typical way that this is done in uh, many a Warner Brothers melodrama of the 30s and 40s is that she loves him, but uh, she knows that she can't uh, be with him unless he somehow changes. So uh, she gives him part of what he wants, which enables them to have something of an ongoing relationship rather than he just tries to go out with her and she turns him down, but rather she sees the person within him that he could possibly be. She sees the circumstances that he was raised in. She knows uh, that he has a, a side of him that can be redeemed, uh, but he's actually got to do those things. He's actually has to renounce uh, his violence and his uh, his criminality in order uh, to uh, win her love. There will be other obstacles, of course. Other members of her family are not going to care mm-hmm. uh, that uh, he has redeemed himself in any way uh, or who he uh, is now. They know who he used to be and do not want their family uh, associated with him. But this main relationship, uh, sh- so uh, she will give him the full acceptance and love that he uh, requires, the highest form of legitimacy, if he completely changes uh, who he is, uh, which even if he wants to do so is a tall order and one subject to it's hard to do uh, backsliding, especially with, you know, her, her brothers or his romantic rival for her hand, just needing a good shooting in an alley. Uh, yes. And classically he would have a, a, uh, a friend uh, slash uh, rival who uh, doesn't uh, want him to go straight. And uh, the friend would be, uh, and so from this friend, uh, he wants a different form of uh, of acceptance of legitimacy. He wants his his criminal running buddy to let him go. He wants to you know turn over the family to him. Uh, just I, I just want out. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the running buddy has an emotional reason for not doing that because again, if you have a scene where well, that's great. That's everything I ever wanted. See, ya. I'll take yeah. care of you and help you however you want. Again, not drama. A so criminal empire for me. That's excellent. Thanks, man. Right. So he has to have some reason of, well, you've always been the boss. You've always figured this stuff out. I'm the guy with the gun. Uh, I'm, I'm your number two, but I know that everything's going to go bad if I say yes. Or it may be that you have the character initially say yes, and then you show why he realizes that he still needs that character to come back. And then, mm-hmm. you know, he tries to lure him back in. I, I like a notion um, which you can use to sort of as, you know, foils within foils. Uh, her father obviously is going to disapprove of the match and you can certainly have a sidekick as well, depending on how, how many great actors you can afford for this for this movie. But uh, another thing that you see, I think fairly often in this sort of story is that 
uh, he was groomed by the, by the, the, the Godfather to take over after the Godfather's dead, that he's the uh, perfect combination of tough and smart and uh, good at uh, running a criminal empire. Uh, all of the virtues that uh, the, the woman sees in him that would also be virtues in the, in the, in the straight world are super virtues in the criminal world. And that his uh, father figure who maybe plucked him out of an orphanage and set him on the path, wants to hang on him because by God, he doesn't want his empire to fall apart and leave those jerks from the South side to take it over or wherever. Right. Right. And so you have twin fathers, both trying to pull the, the, the lovers apart uh, out of recognizable fatherly love. But in each case, the fatherly love is, is somewhat one dimensional because of course he doesn't really value him as a person or else he'd say, no, go find happiness. And likewise, the father of the daughter doesn't believe that her, even if he values her as a person, he doesn't believe in her ability to read the truth of a human being because my, she's just a, a little girl and he knows that men uh, can mislead little girls and, and that he has to protect her from, from the badness. Um, although it's often uh, actually quite uh, moving to have the character realize what they should do and what they want to do. So mm-hmm. uh, his uh, criminal mentor, for example, uh, he's like, well, yeah, I'd really love for you to be able to go and do this, but you know, I, I've uh, put so much into you over the years and uh, I really need you. And, uh, uh, these guys from the from the east side, uh, they're kind of come in and move on me, and I'm not as uh, spry as I used to be. And uh, you're going to let down all the boys, so that if you can find motivations for these characters that are the best motivations, the most understandable ones, mm-hmm. uh, that makes the drama even more poignant because you can kind of see even the the, the Godfather character. If you can make him quasi sympathetic while also being a murderer, you know, and that's why psychopaths uh, who are uh, uh, all over the place in real life and real history uh, and have a big impact on things are often unsatisfying dramatically because by nature they are incapable of caring about other people or making concessions. And they are uh, cartoon characters in real life that they are themselves yeah. uh, one dimensional. Uh, Shakespeare's so, Richard the Third may not have been a portrait of Richard the Third, but it's a portrait of plenty of other people. Yes, <laughs> uh, and and that character type has has continued on uh, into our real life, and so uh, the, often you find yourself uh, to, to enrich the drama, finding sympathy and looking through the viewpoint of uh, characters who, in a more melodramatic. Uh, story or in an iconic uh, hero story would just be villains. Mm-hmm. And in drama, you are trying to humanize everyone, even if realistically that guy would not actually be uh, a fully uh, realized uh, emotional uh, being. And so that's uh, uh, an example of how we've gone from one simple premise to uh, finding a bunch of different characters that our lead is going to interact with and have blocked desires. Uh, you may have an even more complex structure in which you don't have a single protagonist, but you have a bunch of people bouncing off of each other in an ensemble, and you might create a matrix where every character who interacts with another character has uh, a desire, something they want from that other, from character B, and then character B's understandable, and if you can do it, sympathetic reason for uh, blocking that desire. And that is the sort of basic emotional mapping that you do before you start outlining your story and finding different ways to uh, bring them together and have them uh, bounce apart and knock up against each other. So just from the 
uh, matrix of characters that we've come up with here, you can imagine a whole bunch of different scenes that take place as we move toward the resolution and we find out uh, at the end whether he achieves legitimacy uh, and what the cost of that is and whether he can live with that cost or if the quest for the thing he wants, in fact, uh, destroys him. And if it destroys him and he realizes the terrible mistake he's made uh, too late, uh, then you've got a tragedy as well as yeah. a, a, a dark ending. Uh, but uh, this podcast uh, does not quite yet have an ending because there's another segment yet to come. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tyne sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The cleaning of the draft taps, the bitterness of hops tell us that we are once more in that most delicious of segments, in this case, a beverage-oriented version of the food hut. Because, Ken, uh, we're here to talk about uh, your beer of choice, the lager. Yeah, good old lager. And uh, first thing I guess we want to say about lager is that if you're writing uh, fiction or uh, describing a, a, a historical scenario in your game, and uh, it is not yet the 19th century, and you have your characters drinking lager, you are committing an anachronism that the big foamy yellow beers that you may be drawing your dwarfs uh, drinking. Uh, nope, that's not it. Because, uh, you know, imagine, Ken, a history where uh, lager didn't exist. That would be... Oh, wait a minute. I'm hearing the clacking of time gears. I'm hearing the whirring of chronotons. There's Ken's time machine. You know it's what? It's as though someone has said a history in which lager doesn't exist, Robin. Oh, you're right, Ken, because... Uh, it turns out I'm now seeing the case file uh, from uh, Time Incorporated, and I see here that you uh, changed history by introducing a yeast from a Tibetan plateau to a German cave and thus allowed lager to be brewed, uh, and that prevented a terrible timeline uh, from existing. And I guess at this point we need to talk about our friend yeast and uh uh, in the 19th century in Bavaria, uh, brewers decided that uh, they didn't have refrigerators yet because Ken hadn't brought any of those back from the timeline. And a good place to store more beer and, and brew it in cold conditions were in the uh, wintry caves of Bavaria. And they started uh, brewing away. And lo and behold, uh, somehow, instead of having the fermentation occur on the top of the brew, as uh, is typical of ales, uh, this type of yeast went down to the bottom and had bottom fermentation, which allowed uh, lovely 
uh, bubbles, carbonation to come up through the brew. So the traditional uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae yeast was uh, hybridized uh, with uh, a new yeast uh, that is now known as Saccharomyces pastorianus for pasteur. And uh, this uh, fermented on the bottom and allowed creation of, of lager, which then very quickly exploded and now is by far the most popular beer in the world. Even in Belgium, which we think of as the home of dark, delicious, rich, sweet beers, most people, most of the time, mostly uh, drink lager, as you do, Ken. Yeah, uh, because they're clever and because it's delicious. And right. uh, so lager, uh, as I guess we've mentioned, begins... You first see notions of uh, bottom fermenting uh, showing up in the very early 14th century, uh, and then uh, it explodes, as you say, once refrigeration makes it available to people who do not have uh, a lot of cold caves just sitting around to store the beer in. And the cold cave is important because otherwise, I guess, the beer turns into warm lager, which is nasty. And also probably the uh, the delicious sparklingness goes away and it stops being clear and wonderful. It becomes terrible. Although there is also uh, such a thing as a dark lager. And most beers are dark lagers until uh, you start making them in factories. And that's yes. when you have the, the light uh, lager that uh, everyone loves. Uh, yeah, so in fact, the, the lager that you first uh, allowed to exist by taking the yeast Saccharomyces ubianus and sprinkling it in, in these vats in the caves of Bavaria, that would have been a dark lager or a dunkel. Would have been dunkel, as they call it. Yes. Now, some fun ruiners, uh, that particular yeast, which is half of uh, Saccharomyces pastorianus, uh, some have pointed out that even though it was initially identified in South America and has also been identified in Tibet, that surely it is also somewhere in Bavaria, and that's how it got in those caves to get it on with uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. But we know, Ken, that since one of those places is Tibet, a plateau in Tibet, no doubt, you must have put it there, right? Yeah, obviously I did, because goodness knows Bavaria needed it. That poor, the poor boys had, had gone through a lot, and they had and they had bad times coming. So what better? A way for them to get through it than with delicious lager beer. So, what was the uh, the unexpectedly terrible timeline uh, that didn't have lager? Other than, of course, it didn't have lager. Yeah, which is which some would say would be enough reason, but not necessarily blinkered bureaucrats at Time Incorporated. But fortunately, the big impact of lager, besides deliciousness, is to drive the um, uh, creation of the Rheinheitsgebot. The, the beer purity law of Bavaria. Bavaria, uh, very rapidly, once lager becomes a thing, uh, you see more and more, uh, crop yield being turned over to make beer because now you have, you have beer that you can drink under more circumstances than just, um, uh, basically as a meal. You have beer that you can be drinking as a beverage and that's delicious. And the Rheinheitsgebot is passed not so much for beer purity, although that's a big part of it, but also, basically to force farmers to only grow barley for beer. Though what was going on was wheat and rye were increasingly being used uh, as beer ingredients. And uh, if your whole wheat and rye crop has not been baked into bread or saved in a granary and is being dumped into beer mash, then famine comes along and it's a bad scene. So the uh, Rheinheitsgebot uh, passes. And as a result, 
the famines of uh, the 16th century that are the worst famines in Bavaria until the potato famine, uh, they're bad, don't get me wrong, but they don't depopulate the countryside in the same way that the same famine does in France. And if you can compare France, which has got such a massive famine that the government of France undergoes, you know, a series of, of, of wars, a peasant revolt, um, and uh, massive religious dislocation, plus werewolves, uh, you don't have that in Bavaria. Bavaria rides it out. Um, right. and so you're because- putting the Ubianus yeast... Uh, in the vats, not in the 19th century in the caves in Bavaria, but considerably before then, starting the bottom from Yeah, I'm putting, I'm putting it in when it starts to show up in um, uh, the 14th century. The 19th century is when they figure out what they've been doing for 500 years, but they, they've been making, as I say, bottom brewing yeast uh, demonstrably, historically, uh, since the 14th century. And if you're asking um, who, how I got the yeast from Tibet to uh, Bavaria, the answer is Mongols, of course. That's how you get anything anywhere. Um, I'm not going to be flying around collecting yeast like a goof. I'll just get some Mongols to bring something and something yeasty. And it works right. out. And uh, the other uh, beautiful irony, of course, in both the Reinheitskammat is it says you can only have barley, hops, and water in beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, of course, if you actually only have that, you don't have yeast. Right. And you have no beer. But it, uh, the action of yeast was unknown. And uh, the yeast got into the beer all uh, on its own, perhaps abetted by Ken and or Mongols. Maybe a little bit. Well, the Mongols, are the, are, I mean, the Mongols are the delivery service and good for them. But uh, but I did the sprinkling, Robin. That's the important thing. Uh, now, another fa- uh, fact about the Reinheitskammat, of course, is that it was also used uh, for the uh, Protestants to elbow the Catholics. Yeah. Because that enabled uh, them to uh, make their, uh, their favored local beer and the beer that they were producing in their areas the acceptable beer. And uh, the good old, nice, rich, dark uh, ales that were produced elsewhere, including by Catholics, uh, got the boot uh, as a result. Yeah, it wasn't primarily, um, uh, it, I mean, Bavaria basically stayed Catholic through the period. Um, but the, but, but the, it was very much about neighboring Germans ain't be bringing beer in here. And, and that's a big part of it. it. It acts as a, like all regulations, it also acts as a protection racket. And the question is, what's the trade-off worth? And in this case, you get lager. So of course it's worth it. Right. And, uh, and, and the wheat gets saved from bread. Right. And, and of course we should point out that at this point, uh, Germany is a, a region, but not a polity. It is. The, right. The, yes. Uh, Bavaria is a separate place. And, uh, now could it be argued, Ken, that the Reinheitsgebot, uh, is one of the factors that eventually uh, allows uh, the German regions to fuse together on the basis that uh, it provides a uh, unified uh, baseline for beer making across Germany. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I th- I think that there's an interesting phenomenon, and I think really it does come down to the fact that lager is just delicious. Obviously, people in Berlin will adulterate their beer with strawberries or or whatever kind of craziness, uh, or make wheat beer. There's you know uh, wheat beer is famously a, a northern German thing, um, but the provision of a common structure for beer making does unify the country and the sort of regional variations in beer don't, don't reignite nationalist uh, tensions between uh, the North and the South in the way that you might expect that they, that they would otherwise. Right. Because, and, and also in your, uh, your technique of uh, making people go along with you by drinking him under the table is you're not the only one who uses that. And in <laughs> Germany, it's often beer 
that is used to accomplish that. Uh, so, Ken, uh, another benefit, of course, of, of this is that when Germany becomes a lager culture, a beer culture, becomes even more in love with beer, uh, that means that they pay less attention to the, all of the lovely Riesling that they're producing, which then gets exported so we can drink it. Oh, yes. No, there's, it's, it's nothing but, the, but good side effects all the way down. Um, the notion that, uh, that, the people in the the Mosul and the and the and the Rhine Valley suddenly have something else delicious, light and refreshing to drink instead of Riesling. Uh, does mean that everyone's a winner, especially people overseas from the Mosul Valley, uh, and uh, the uh, creation of the, or the not quite duplication of that palate, but the the cross palatal uh, uh, phenomenon. I think is is yet more evidence that we were right. And one of these days, my long-standing prevent World War I ticket is going to get punched, and I'm going to be able to keep Riesling as the soft drink of choice for everybody, not just you, me, and the Germans. Uh, so all that stock of delicious uh, lager makes uh, me want to uh, fly to Germany. So I think I'll do that on Friday uh, and uh, leave everybody as if they've just enjoyed a, uh, a lovely beer, uh, wanting more, and more will come a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from destructive wild yeast by stirring it up with such beloved Patreon backers as... Simon Proctor. Ethan James. Linda and Mike Schiffer. Peter Nix. And Philip Masters. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new ultra on-brand design Gaming Hut. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. Stuff.